Today's passage is infamous in a way in that it contains one of the most quoted and I'd argue misused verses in all of Scripture. And it's too bad, really, because what comes before for God so loved the world is an encounter between Jesus and a reluctant follower, an encounter that has a lot to teach us to teach people like you and me, people who, like Nicodemus, tend to segregate and separate our life from our faith. We meet, when we meet Nicodemus in today's story, he has come to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Despite being a leader of the Pharisees, the group intent on destroying Jesus, Nicodemus is intrigued enough by him to risk an encounter with him. But to be careful, he can't blow his cover. He comes to Jesus under the veil of darkness, which makes him not all that different from us. We, too, are intrigued by Jesus, but, from my experience, we are also guarded in our pursuit of him. We love him, but we, too, have to be careful, so we seek him out in safe places, private places, quiet places, places like the church. But you're still here. Most of you came here last week, so I'm guessing you like what you found You've enjoyed your encounter with Jesus. But like Nicodemus, I'm also guessing you are a bit confounded by Jesus' obsession with our need to be born again. Underneath all the miracles and the promises and the stories and the blessings and the parables, Jesus seems hell-bent on changing us. It doesn't take long for us to learn a couple Sundays, and you get the message. God loves us as we are, but God isn't finished with us yet. Jesus is clear to Nicodemus, and I think to us, we all must be born again. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, and no one can enter into the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Translation, if you want to see and experience the kingdom, you have to be born all over again. You may have heard the story before, but the conversion of writer Anne Lamott is a classic. If you haven't read her books, Anne Lamott is one of my favorite people of faith. Her love for God is so tangible, it drips off the pages of her books, along with her humor, her irreverence, and an occasional bit of profane language. It's lovely. Before she described herself as a person of faith, Anne was a harsh skeptic of Christians, even though she liked hanging out with them from time to time. Well, one day, after a long night of drinking and carousing, Anne had an encounter with Jesus that changed her life. After a while, she writes in her memoir, Traveling Mercies, after a while I became aware of someone with me, hunkered down in the corner. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't anybody there. But after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus, and I was absolutely appalled. 
I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian, and it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. So I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. I left him there. I felt him sitting there in the corner, watching me with patience and with love, and I squinted my eyes shut. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning, he was gone. Now, this experience spooked Anne. It would have spooked me. I hope it would spook you. But she couldn't shake the feeling that God was still with her, waiting to transform her life. One week later, she writes, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs or the prayers. And this time, I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was so ridiculous. I mean, it's like trying to convince someone, convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. I feel that way sometimes. But the last song was so deep and so raw and so pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, and I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. After this experience at a small, of all places, Presbyterian church, Anne raced home, and while standing at her front door, exhausted, she took a long, deep breath and said out loud to Jesus, all right, you can come in. It is so much easier to invite Jesus into our worship and our private prayer life. It's easy to seek him out here in this relatively safe place. But if you want to experience life, a real life, a joyful life, a meaningful life, you've got to invite Jesus into your home, into your workplace, into your school, and into your Friday night fun. Because it's out there where you spend most of your time. It's out there where you wade through your addiction, your workplace squabbles, your family conflicts, your school stresses, and your personal struggles. It's out there in the light of day where you live, where you most need to see and experience the kingdom that Jesus teaches us is at hand. Now, I wear a robe, but I still understand. I I get why people resist giving Jesus an all-access pass to their life. Believe me, I have many of the same fears you do. If I let him in, I worry that he won't like what he sees that he'll judge me when he sees me for who I really am. I worry that once I let him in, he's going to take over the place. I mean, I want to be in control, not him. And I also honestly worry that life with him just won't be as much fun. I get it. The fears aren't unfounded. And this is why I believe right after this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus, an encounter where he reminds the man, he reminds us that before we can see and experience the kingdom of God, we have to be transformed. Before he says all that, after he says all that, he tells him this really good news. For God so loved the world, he says, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. The one who wants to change us, he's saying, is the same one who loves us. 
and yet we resist. We resist letting Jesus in. And I find it interesting to contrast this resistance to Jesus with our willingness to give technology an all-excess pass. Let's be honest. Our smartphones, our tablets, our gadgets are everywhere that Jesus longs to be. They are at your dinner table. I know they are. They're at mine. Sorry. They are with us when we're out with our friends, taking pictures of all the things we're doing. They record whatever it is our kids are doing at that moment and help us share them with folks even if they don't care to see. And our smartphones, our gadgets, our apps, they come with us to work, to concerts, and even to our experience of worship. I see you. (laughs) And I'd be doing the exact same thing. We have a relationship, an intimate relationship with all our gadgets. The movie Her is not that far-fetched. And the reason why we have this relationship is simple. We give technology an all-excess pass to our lives because technology adds value to our life. Sure, we could all do a better job of drawing boundaries around the use of our phones and our computers, but the reason we love Skyping with our grandkids, posting events on Facebook, sharing pictures on Pinterest, checking our email on our phone, and playing an occasional round of Candy Crush is because technology actually does, at some level, make our life better. In his book, Living Without Enemies, the Reverend Sam Wells makes an interesting observation about where Jesus chooses to spend his time. If you analyze the life of Jesus, he argues, you will notice he spends about a week, the last week of his life, working inside a religious institution like this. Prior to that, he spends about three years helping people on his way to that religious institution, which means he spends the bulk of his life, 30 years, with the people where they live, doing what it is they do. And for some reason, I don't know why, we've inverted the pyramid. While Jesus spends less than 1% of his life in this sacred space, we relegate our encounters with Jesus and with God to this place when it appears that this place may be the least likely place we're going to meet him. You see, like Nicodemus, we don't need more religion. We got that covered. What we need is to be given a new understanding of how God works outside the walls of this safe and sacred space. The driver, Megan, was 16 years old. Her friend Nancy was 16 as well, and she was sitting next to her in the passenger seat. The accident wasn't Megan's fault. A van swerved into her lane, and in her attempt to avoid it, her car rolled. Tragically, Nancy's injuries were too severe. She died the next day. Eight days later, Nancy's father, Steve, a Presbyterian pastor, stood in the pulpit on a Sunday morning in front of a packed sanctuary and preached these words. This is what I have glimpsed, he said. 
I've seen not a God who caused this, that predestined this and pulled the strings for the final outcome. Long ago, I lost my faith in a God who manipulates our every move, who swerves a white painter's van across the path of Nancy's stupid Ford Explorer, causing it to roll over way too easily. Luckily, no one has said to me yet, it was God's will. If so, there might be two tragedies. But several have asked, he goes on, why? As if God did this, but why? Why will serve no purpose? God's answer to that question is the same as to Job. Were you there? Where were you when I created the universe? The only question now is, what's next? Will God do something to redeem this? Will God pick up the broken pieces and fit them back together in a meaningful puzzle? Will God tie the hanging threads of our lives and weave them into a fabric of redemption? My prayer now sounds like, what's next, God? Will you be who you will be, the God of liberation, the God of reconciliation, the God of resurrection? What's next is my question, and the answer will come when it's time. The only way I think a father, a pastor, who lost his daughter could preach those words is if he had been born again. And I'm not talking about being saved. I'm talking about being given a new way of seeing and experiencing life. When Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, he's trying to figure out how he can fit Jesus into his life. And Jesus will have none of it. The stakes are too high for Nicodemus, and they're too high for us. Jesus doesn't want to fit into Nicodemus' life. He wants to transform his experience of his life. The Reverend Will Willimon tells the story of a couple in a church he served many years ago. As Willimon sat with the family at the hospital, the doctor, who didn't have the best, side, best bedside manner, spared few words. Your baby is afflicted with Down syndrome, he said. I had expected this, but things were too far along before I could say for sure. Is the baby healthy? The mother asked. That's what I want to discuss with you, the doctor said. The baby is healthy except for the problem. However, it does have a slight, rather common respiratory ailment. My advice is that you... Let me take it off the respirator. That might solve things. At least it's a possibility. It's not a possibility for us, they responded together. I know how you feel, said the doctor, but you need to think about what you were doing. You already have two beautiful kids. Statistics show that people who keep these babies are at a higher risk of marital stress and family problems. Is it fair to do this to children you already have? Is it fair to bring this suffering into your family? At the mention of the word suffering, the mother's face strangely brightened as if the doctor were finally making sense to her. Suffering, she said quietly. We appreciate your concern, doctor, but we are Christians. God suffered for us, and we will try to suffer for the baby if we must. On the way out, the doctor turned to Willimon and said, Pastor, I hope you can do something with them. Two days later, the reverend and the doctor watched the couple leave the hospital. They walked slowly, carrying 
a small bundle that seemed a heavy burden. The two men felt as if they could hear them dragging, clanking it down the front steps of the hospital, moving slowly but deliberately into the cold, gray March morning. It will be too much for them, the doctor said. You should have talked them out of it. You should have helped them to understand. But as they left, Willimon noticed a curious look on his parishioners' faces. They looked as if the burden was not too heavy at all. They seemed borne up on another's shoulders, being carried towards some high place the doctor and he would not be going, following away the two guys they just didn't understand. Now, that couple had a burden to be sure, but they knew that wherever their journey led them, God would be there waiting for them to enlighten their life. I'm sure they were afraid and confused. Who wouldn't be? But I also believe they had been born again. They had invited Jesus in and had their lives enlightened by his presence. They had learned from the very Spirit of God that there was nowhere they could go where Jesus would not be waiting to help them see and experience the truth that defines our lives. For God so loved the world. Amen. affirm what we believe, even the affirmation of faith you'll find printed in your bulletin. The reconciling work of Jesus was a supreme crisis in the life of humankind. His cross and resurrection become personal crisis and present hope for all when the gospel is proclaimed and believed. In this experience, the Spirit brings God's forgiveness to all people, 
moves them to respond in faith, repentance, and obedience, and initiates the new life in Christ. The new life does not release one from unbelief, pride, lust, and fear. A person still has to struggle with disheartening difficulties and problems. Nevertheless, as one matures in love and faithfulness in a life with Christ, one lives in freedom and good cheer, bearing witness on good days and bad days, confident that the new life is pleasing to God and helpful to others. Amen.